E-S-N-Y. of the Hoops Addicts Anonymous podcast, an Elite Sports NY production recording on the evening of March 2nd. It's a Tuesday, a little past 7 p.m., rolling as always with my co-host Chip Murphy. Chip, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing good. Uh, Second pod of the week. Um, Looking forward to talking some hoops tonight, some team-specific hoops I wish I could get that word out. (laughs) Um, And uh, as Knicks fans, um, you know, we kind of started last year doing uh, just focusing on team specific pods and and reaching out to different writers. Um, So, you know, when we were thinking about the Indiana Pacers, Chip and I were looking and we've reached out to some writers in the past. But um, from afar, we've been, you know, uh, big fans of this person's work and we are very Happy to have her on the podcast tonight from SB Nation's Indie Corn Rose site. We have Caitlin Cooper coming on the podcast tonight. Caitlin, what's going on? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good. Happy to be here. Not so happy to talk about how the Pacers are playing right now, but glad to be talking to you guys. I appreciate it for sure. Um, and when we thought we would start and, and um, you know, anyone who's listening to the show knows that when we have new writers on, we ask them to kind of talk about their fandom a little bit, maybe their fondest memories of supporting the team um, that they write, that they cover. So we just wanted to start there with you. Uh, just fondest Pacers memories growing up. Maybe we could start the conversation on a, on a good note before we kind of move into uh, their, their season thus far. Right. So um, a lot of the Pacers dick stuff was kind of in my fetus stage. That was a little bit before my time, but um, I grew up a pretty big fan of Jermaine O'Neal. Like I, I loved that guy. I loved watching his post game. I loved his ability to block shots with both hands and take charges. So um, also I think a lot of times for some reason um, as a Pacer fan and all of our long suffering pain of like getting almost there only to get beat by like, you know, LeBron or Michael Jordan or Kobe and Shaq or whoever it is. I have somewhat of a negativity bias. So like memories that stick out in my head are like Tayshawn Prince blocking Reggie Miller in transition mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the Paul George Pacer era heat, you know, the Pacers losing to LeBron in those series, but um yeah, I would say for whatever reason, whether it's bad injuries as Paul George and Victor, I'm just always expecting the worst. Absolutely. Um, any thoughts on, a, you know, it, it's funny. Um, I definitely did not like the Pacers growing up, but a player that I've grown to enjoy kind of just over the years, more so because I enjoy him as an analyst and specifically some of the podcasts that he does. But uh, were you a Jalen Rose fan at all uh, growing up or what, what were kind of your thoughts on, on his game? Yeah. I mean, he was a key piece obviously on the 2000 team. Uh, and as you say, like his actual, like of the Pacer podcasters and analysts in today's age, Jalen is definitely the most tolerable. I think we would all agree. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Re- Reggie is enthusiastic, but gets off the tracks quite a bit. And Mark Jackson is just, you know, Mark Jackson. So, yeah. 
Um, and then a, a place I thought we would transition is um, just a little bit on Nate McMillan. Uh, we, we did a podcast yesterday and we, we forgot to touch on the Atlanta Hawks uh, firing Lloyd Pierce and tabbing McMillan with the interim role. Um, Pacers fans that I spoke to before, you know, were kind of love-hate on McMillan. Of course, you know, a solid defensively uh, in his philosophy, but most were kind of tired of, of the offense that he was running and they, were, they wanted somebody to come in and kind of modernize them. Uh, what, if anything, do you think that Nate McMillan can maybe add to Atlanta? Uh, do you think that he will be a little bit more successful there than maybe Pierce was this season? It's, it's tough to say because they both have some similarities. Like you say, there was a lot of people in Indiana that wanted Nate McMillan not only to modernize the offense in the sense that the Pacers were okay just you know taking open shots and really living from mid-range, which became problematic in the playoffs, but also because they were good at being vanilla. Like they, they ran like the most basic, if I, if, if you look up what is a stagger, that is what the Pacers ran. So when they got into that playoff series against Miami and Miami switching and they don't have a lot of ISO options, it became very hitchy. They'd run like one action. And of course they're running it at Bam, who's one of the best players in the league to switch across all five positions. And it's like, okay, now, now the offense has stopped and they can't get to the next thing. And some of that was a product of not having Sabonis as a connector, but it also was just stemming from the fact that they didn't have a lot of baked in wrinkles to really run this motion based offense that kind of Nate Bjorkren has implemented. So I think some of the criticisms with Lloyd Pierce kind of stem from the fact that so much of their offense was just like double drags with Trey Young and kind of giving him the space to really create out of that. And I could see that that could kind of be a carryover with Nate McMillan. I mean, the Pacers leaned a lot on just running like standstill high pick and roll. They ran double drags last year and there wasn't a ton of creativity, but in the sense that he does hold people accountable. Um, that might be good for a young roster. And he did get development out of young players over the last several years. I mean, I think you can look at a lot of players, whether it's defensively, and some of that probably trails back to Dan Burke as well. I mean, Boyan Bogdanovich became a better defender with the Pacers. TJ Warren became a better defender with the Pacers. So I think that they might benefit from some of that. Um, and just ironing out kinks on the defensive end, I think will probably help them though. Their defense hasn't been that bad as late, especially with Clint, what Clint Capella is doing inside, but offensively, I don't know that you'll see a big change. Mm. I think, um, it, you know, we mentioned Nate Bjork in, um, in there, he was hired in part, like we were saying before to modernize the offense um, 33 games into the season. How would you compare the offense this season to the offense that McMillan was running uh, last year. Um, are you waiting to maybe judge uh, Bjorken on a, a maybe a more, um, not severe or, or serious level, but when maybe the, the team is able to play with Karras and TJ Warren is maybe, you know, doesn't have just four games under his belt? Sure, because I think in a lot of ways, you can see ways that teams are covering the Pacers right now where those two would help them out a lot. Like for example, when they played the jazz, that that's a great one to look at because during that stretch, the Pacers had played the Pelicans the game before and Stan Van Gundy really was kind of the first coach that I saw that was really having teams duck under on pick and rolls against the Pacers and the Pacers lead the league in rim frequency. So that was a pretty sound strategy of, okay, we're going to force, even though Malcolm Brogdon was shooting pull-up threes at a pretty high rate, we're going to, we're going to test Malcolm Brogdon's ability to hit those shots so that we can take all of their ability to get into the paint and really trigger some of their motion and just take Sabonis away on the interior. So Utah did 
did that. And then as well, like Rudy Gobert over the years has been one of the tougher defenders that Sabonis has struggled to score on in the post. And that goes back even to uh, the World Cup when Lithuania played France. You'd even see it there. So when they're in that game and in Utah's ducking under and then Utah's able to guard Sabonis with single coverage rather than doubles and there's not an easy way to pass out, they, they got pretty stagnant. And in that case, I think if you have TJ Warren or Karis LeVert, you can move Malcolm off the ball and at least get more combinations of ball handlers where if Gobert is dropping in the paint, then Sabonis can be handing off to them and they're a lot more natural creating off the dribble, not necessarily as ISO scores, but being able to shoot off the dribble and get into the paint and make something happen. So that isn't just all on Malcolm Brogdon and pretty much TJ McConnell. There's just not a lot of playmakers on this roster. So it really turned into a lot of, you know, standstill post-ups, which weren't going to be super effective against a guy that Sabonis struggles against. But overall, to your question, after that long-winded one about just some of the scheme changes that teams are throwing in ways that you could see that TJ and Karras would get better. Um, in Bjorkren's case, yeah, like it's a definitely a motion-based offense. They've eliminated most of the mid-range. Like I think a year ago, they ranked like 27th and their percentage of shots they took at the rim and from three. And then early on in the season, they were in the top 10. Like the mid-range is, is pretty much gone. So that's helpful in how high their ceiling could be in the playoffs. But they were also brand new to the league over those first 10 games. And you had Victor there to also be putting pressure on the rim. And now I think you're kind of seeing teams gear up on some of the sets that they're running. And they had a week off due to some COVID cancellations. And you could see that they kind of had to work on some extra wrinkles. So overall, I would say to be determined, but I felt pretty good when they were healthier with Victor that their half court offense looked better. There was better ways to get around switches than what Nate McMillan was doing. So I'm optimistic. You're optimistic about the offense or overall with the defense too, just because is it simply because last year, obviously they were better through 33 games than they are now. But I, what the first question I wanted to ask you was, is it simply just injuries and that they're missing guys and that they're struggling because they're on their fourth uh, their second four game losing streak of the season this early. And they only had one four game losing streak all year last year. So it's obviously they're underachieving so far. And I just wanted to ask, do you think it's just simply injuries that they're off to a slow start and that they're missing Warren and they traded for Levert and when they get back Levert, which hopefully is this month and eventually get back Warren, do you think things will just figure themselves out? Right. So offensively, yeah, I think adding two scores who can, like I said, can diversify what they're able to do with some of their screening combinations is going to make a difference. But as you say, some of that is somewhat a strategy difference. Nate McMillan very much coached every single game to win. And what their game plan was during the regular season was largely also their game plan in the playoffs. And there wasn't really an extra gear to get to from the get go this season, Kevin Pritchard and Nate Bjorkren have said, like we are playing the long game. So the Pacers, a lot of times in games, some much to my dismay at times might throw out all these different types of defenses because they think down the road in the playoffs that they might need to use one of them, whether it's a junk coverage or it's switching or whatever it is. And it kind of feels a little bit like they're a Jack of all trades and master of none at times on that end of the floor. They can also be a little bit too dogmatic. I mean, last night against the Sixers is a great example. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. They fight over 
they, they go overboard with overs. Like they can have Ben Simmons out 30 feet from the basket and there's a transition screen or a screen and Malcolm Brogdon is fighting over the top and just basically giving him a runway to the basket because that is what they do. They want to, they want to pressure and suffocate and be aggressive and disruptive. So even if a ball, even if it's a big out there handling and they're not even going into a dribble handoff, Sabonis will be three feet outside of the basket. And that's just opening up way too many easy scores. So in that respect, I feel like they're definitely going to make need to make some changes schematically. I don't think it's going to be as simple as just, oh, Karras and Warren are healthy on the defensive end now and everything's fixed because their zone defense is very messy. At times you can watch them play box in one or they'll go to triangle in two. And I, I've used this analogy before, but the best example I can give, not everybody knows this, but when Dum Dum makes mystery suckers, the way they become a mystery sucker is they make all of the green apple suckers. And then instead of having to clean out the molds, they'll run like the cherry next. So what a mystery sucker actually is, is green apple mixed with cherry. And that's what you get. That's what the Pacers look like at times when they're switching between schemes, half of them will still be in a zone. And then there'll be a guy on the top, like say it's Doug McDermott. He'll be at the top of a box and one, and he'll be looking back. Like, why are there three people in a line behind me? Like one of you needs to be up here. And it's just possessions like that, where they're just kind of giving that to an opponent. Like they might miss a shot, but it is obviously not good defense and zone there. There's just too many times where they're just covering, or I I would say very literally defending a spot instead of matching up and covering within their areas. So overall, like, yeah, I don't think the defense is just magically going to be fixed if they get healthy, unless they start adjusting some of what they're doing. Like that was supposed to be it. They are adaptable. They're switching a lot of things, but the way that they're switching it and against which opponents they're switching, it doesn't always make sense. Before I forget, everyone should go to uh, SB Nation and read Caitlin's article on how teams are breaking the Pacers 2-3 zone because it's incredible. I just wanted to give you props on that. It's so good. I learned a lot on that. It's very, I don't, it's very good. I just wanted to say that before I forgot. Um, and with that, I I watched the Sixers game you were talking about. Yeah, last night, and I would. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I watched them play the Knicks too. Obviously, me and Jeff are Knicks fans, and I was just like you said, I was just shocked at the way this team was playing defense. It's like, oh my god, I was talking to Jeff about it. Like, I can't believe how this team looks on defense uh, compared to the way they looked last year, and it's weird because me and Jeff were talking about Miles Turner. They have one of the best defensive players in the NBA on their team. The guy who's leading the league in shots, shot blocks. He's putting up these insane numbers. And I mean, they're, I mean, they're not, I, they were sixth in defensive rating last year. They're just not the defensive team they were last year. And you said that uh, switching uh, the schemes is something they obviously need to do. But I was looking back at uh, Nate Bjorkinen's comments from when he was hired and he talks a lot about playing zone coverages and how this is how he wants to run things and do things the way they did in Toronto, obviously. And, but I don't think they have that kind of uh, personnel that Toronto does, or I mean, no one does. So that's not fair to say that, (laughs) Uh, but uh, I mean, I, is there any other solution that you see on the roster or do they just need to, I don't know. Is there a trade or something or is it as simple as as simple as what you're saying? I don't know. Right. So exactly. Like the minute he gave his introductory press conference, Mm -hmm. whatever way, I was like, you know, 
this sounds like Toronto, like this yeah. whirling scheme of going from defense to defense. And I was concerned about it. I mean, I literally wrote an article of can the Pacers defend like the Raptors? They don't have this amount of length. I mean, Toronto last year led the league and and blocks at the three point line and blocks aren't everything, but that shows their ability. They're like incredible recovery skills that they have in, in OG and Siakam and Norman Powell and on and on and on that the Pacers just kind of have an unbalanced roster in that regard. I mean, they're pretty much all combo guards and, and centers with not a lot in between and especially not with TJ Warren right now. So the way that they kind of sink in and want to use uh, they they're very aggressive at the nail. And it doesn't really matter who it is. Like, once again, it's dogmatic. Like, it could be a big up at the top, and they're going to have Sabonis helping early at the nail. And then he's in, like, this help and fly role, and then he's having to shoot out to shooters. And really about the only person who's going to be super good at that on the Pacers roster was Victor Oladipo because he just has this incredible closing speed. Otherwise, you know, you have smaller guards, and people can just shoot over the top, or you have bigs who are lumbering out. And I feel like in a lot of respects, they just need to tone some of it down and be more conservative with it. I mean, that's what they were last year. They stayed home more on shooters. They defended their own positions. There wasn't as much switching. And I agree with Nate Bjorkren that you get to a point where, especially in today's NBA, I think you need to be able to show the best players lots of different coverages. And and there were times last year where the Pacers were probably, I would say, too reactionary. I mean, Last night, they were too aggressive trapping Joel Embiid, and they just weren't good at it. But last year, they would just let Miles Turner guard him single coverage, and Embiid basically owns Miles' soul, and he'd get into trouble, like foul trouble, like two minutes into the game, and then he's not even on the court. So I think there needs to be a happy middle between both sides. Like, I don't think they need to be picking up at three-quarters court and pressuring for entire games. I don't think that they need to be this aggressive sinking in off of shooters all the time and with every type of player. Like, I mean, this is the stat that I bring up all the time, and I think it's dropped off a little bit because the Pacers have been in some blowouts, so Sabonis hasn't played as many minutes. But last week, he literally was leading the league in defense and and distance traveled on defense as a center. That's never happened since the NBA started tracking that stat in 2013-14. Like, and he's not a center who should be doing that. He's not Bam. Um, I, I don't think he's a terrible defender, but you have to be more conservative with him. And the Pacers were able to do that over the last four years, and he had a positive on-off rating. And now, you know, there's more of a drop-off when Miles is off the court because, like you said, like Miles, obviously his block numbers are incredible. Like that's just obscene. The percentage that he's holding people at the rim is also obscene. But in part that's what happens or that's what they need because they're funneling the most shots in the league to the rim. Like they're constantly giving up odd man advantages and that's putting a lot of pressure on miles to constantly be doing this. And then it's the question of, you know, even when Sabonis isn't up at the four and having to hedge and help and fly and do all this stuff, then when he's at the five, he doesn't have the wingspan and the measurables and and the closing speed to hold up having to defend that many shots at the basket. Like, so I think there's minor tweaks that they need to make, but overall, like watching Philadelphia last night and knowing that Dan Burke was the Pacers uh, defensive coordinator and then watching how good Philly's defense looked and just like how messy the Pacers looked like it was some pain. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, uh, another, uh, another thing I wanted to get into with you is, is Bjorgren's uh, uh, rotations. And in one of the most recent Indy Cornrows pods, you talked a lot about a uh, rotation pairing specifically at the four and five positions. And, um, you know, based on the stats, you know, having Jeremy Lamb and Sabonis on the court for a lot of minutes is, is not going to be good for your defense, but it seems like those two were getting paired together um, 
you know, a fair amount. And then on the opposite end, you know, Justin Holiday and, and Miles Turner were getting paired um, together a lot. Um, and it's, it's always interesting to me when we get into conversations about these types of pairings where the stats, you know, so obviously say, um, you know, in one direction, whether it's positive or negative. And as Knicks fans, like we have conversations about this all the time, like Alfred Payton, you know, why is he getting so many minutes? Uh, you know, he's not, not very, a very good shooter and, and the net ratings and the on and off, you know, they say something so clearly, but yet he still plays, right? Um, so why do coaches do this? Uh, or what, what, what can you kind of hypothesize as maybe uh, Bjorkren's reasoning for some of those pairings when the stats so clearly say, you know, in, in one way that they're not effective. Right. So on the one hand, like if, if TJ Warren was healthy, this wouldn't be a thing. Like they wouldn't be playing Jeremy Lamb at the four. Like it's obscene now that they're playing him at the four. I mean, there was a game against the Pelicans where he was literally out there guarding Zion Williamson. Like Jeremy Lamb overall is not a good defender. Um, and I think some of that, he looks a little worse this year and that probably has to do with the knee injury and just his ability to move around. But like, he's just, he's, he's been pretty egregiously bad. Like that sounds mean, but it's the case. And so I don't really know that there's so many times where he gets paired, not only just with Sabonis, but they'll run a lineup with TJ, Aaron and Doug and Jeremy all at the same time. And it's like, that's way too small and not any perimeter, like no rim deterrence at all in that lineup. And I think some of it stems from the fact that, and I agree with this portion of it, they wanted to leave Miles in longer in the first quarter and bring Sabonis out earlier, which I think is a good adjustment because that's what Sabonis has done pretty much in his career. Playing smaller bursts, he would come out at the six-minute mark, then come back in with the bench. And I think with everything he gets asked to do in terms of how physical he plays, how much he's required for of the rebounding and playing on and off the ball, like it makes sense to play him in smaller bursts. But then they'd bring Jeremy in and shift Justin down to the four with Miles and then Doug would come back in, play at the three, and that shifts Jeremy down. And here are the last couple of games, they've they've been more willing against New York because New York was playing bigger against Philadelphia because they're playing bigger. They played Jakar Sampson and Goga, and I think that defensively that makes more sense, but obviously it didn't end up in winning. Um, the Alfred Payton question is a good one. Uh, overall, I kind of think back, I think there was a time in OKC where I remember Scott Brooks doing a podcast where people are like, you know, why are you continuing to start Kendrick Perkins? This makes no sense. And he basically said that like, that's what Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook wanted. And they wanted his leadership and toughness out on the floor. So like he ran with it and, and it's like, you know, but my only quibble with that would be as the coach, isn't it your job to kind of explain why that isn't a good thing for the team and get the buy-in rather than just like kind of bending to the star players. I, I don't know what the answer is there. I don't think that's the case with the Pacers. I don't think there's any star player being like play Jeremy Lamb at the four, but that could probably influence some coaching decisions in some areas right now. I just don't think Bjorkren has a lot of flexibility in terms of what they even have at the four spot. That was already a hole for them last year. I mean, Justin does what he can and he's a good defender, but he gives up heft in the post. I mean, that showed up in the playoffs that showed up at times last year, even just his length out on the perimeter, you know, guarding a guy like Michael Porter jr. 
year. He struggled to stay in front because he just doesn't have enough size. But if TJ were healthy, they would be playing starting TJ and, and Miles, and then TJ would probably play some minutes at the four like he did last year, and then Justin would be playing in the bench unit off the four. We wouldn't be seeing Jeremy Lamb anymore in those instances, but I fear that until that happens, we're probably going to see it again. You know, to your point um, about the uh, the coach bending to the stars, will I mean, isn't that essentially what they were doing in Brooklyn, starting DeAndre Jordan um, for for months, even when Jared Allen was there before they traded him? Like, I, it w- I think it was clear to most people that DeAndre Jordan wasn't playing well or wasn't defending well, but not to DeAndre Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> That's key. Um, but you know, he's Katie's boy. And, and that's why he was on the team in the first place. And I have to assume that's why he was playing. Um, but yeah, I agree, agree with you on that end as well. I mean, it's, it's gotta be the coach's job to be able to explain, um, why this, this five, this group of five guys gives us the best chance of winning. Um, I think I want to, I also wanted to talk about Oladipo for a little bit, because he's like a, a really interesting player that's surfaced in a lot of Nick's Twitter talks, especially with his impending free agency. Um, Oladipo, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he had a pretty solid start to the year, and I think he was playing playing pretty well. And since he's been traded to Houston, he hasn't been able to stay on the court much. Um, how do you think the team has responded since Oladipo was traded? Because I, I was looking at some of the stats, especially on cleaning the glass, and, and I – I know that the Pacers offense kind of revolves around getting to the rim and putting pressure on the rim. His numbers weren't great in that area, uh, especially in Indiana, but it does seem like for whatever reason, if it's just lacking another, um, you know, creator off the dribble or playmaker that they have really struggled with him. At least the record would say that. So in just in general, how do you think they've responded uh, or, or what do you think that, they can do whether it's from a lineup standpoint to kind of uh, compensate for that loss. Right. So with Victor, the pairing with him and Brogdon was really billed when Brogdon was signed as like, it's this perfect fit. Then when he came back last year, like it wasn't a perfect fit. I mean, some of that was because he wasn't himself, but Brogdon, when he signed said, you know, I, I want to be a point guard or I think that's my best position. So then there was this dynamic of, okay, well, Victor's not really looking like himself. His three shot isn't falling. And also his handle was just pretty messy, especially in the bubble. So it's not really reliable to be playing him on ball, but Brogdon wasn't getting near as many catch and shoot threes as he was getting as a spot up option in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. His efficiency really dropped. So it was kind of, how do we figure this out? Well, then Bjorkren takes over. Brogdon had spent the summer working on hitting pull-up threes, hitting more shots off the dribble. And he continues to put the the ball in Brogdon's hands, which I think makes sense. He's the more reliable playmaker. But Victor, at the time, at least for those first 10 games, was hitting shots pretty well off of screens, which was never really part of his game. Like, he didn't do a lot coming off of screens. But they run so many staggered actions that that's really how they trigger some of their plays, whether it's with a shot or just driving into those gaps. So that was really kind of making that pairing actually shine. Like through that time, right when they traded for Karis LeVert, I had a stat where they had actually already assisted each other more times through those 10 games than they had during the 13 prior to the hiatus and in the bubble. So the fit was making more sense, but 
then when Victor's gone, the other thing that you had was, like you say, like right now in the starting lineup, they're starting Justin and they're starting Doug. Mm-hmm. Doug can put the ball on the floor coming off of a stagger, but you're not going to run him in pick and roll. Like you're not going to take turns like Brogdon and, and Oladipo were at putting pressure on the rim and being able to do some of that stuff. So a lot more of the weight is falling on Brogdon in terms of playmaking. And then, like I said earlier, they're just scheming around Brogdon and going under. So now all the playmaking's relying on Sabonis and what they're doing around post-ups. But um, I think defensively, they even feel it more. Like, I don't think, I don't know that Oladipo has ever pro- properly got the amount of credit he deserves and just how good he is at being able to tag and get back out to shooters. And that's impacted their rebounding. I mean, you look at their drop in and defensive rating since then, they're now just over the game since he, he last played their 17th, but they are dead last in giving up second chance points, even though they have two centers in the starting lineup. And part of that is because if you have Sabonis out chasing on the perimeter, the Pacers want to use fly by closeouts. They don't want to use choppy feet. So then, you know, your best rebounders out of the picture. Now you have four weaker rebounders in the paint and Victor was a lot better at carving out space and actually making effort to get into that weak side rotation. And so often Jeremy Lamb misses that or Doug will miss it. And then they're just giving up easy points. So I think that's one area where they definitely will miss him. And I don't know if Karras necessarily fixes that. I think Karras's length will help in the case that, you know, he's a guy who could in theory get you six steals in a game. He's certainly not going to do that every game, but there's going to be cases where he can do that. And they really want to get out and transition and force more turnovers and his length helps in that regard. But um I think that Nate has tried to move the pieces around to compensate for a lot of the things. There was even a game where um, somebody was out and they started TJ McConnell so that they could have more playmaking. And, you know, he, TJ is a spark plug off the bench. That's his ideal role, but they just have a lot of guys who are having to be stretched further than what they should naturally be. I mean, Doug McDermott's been great. He's doing more around the basket, but he's a bench player. TJ McConnell is a bench player. Like these people are just kind of being asked to do more than they're really capable of doing. I think TJ McConnell played like 40 minutes against the next 46 of 48. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I was shocked. Like, is he ever going to come out? It was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. He came out for like a one minute and a half stretch in the second quarter. I remember thinking they had a very awkward lineup out there. I think it was like Jakar and Goga, Aaron, Justin and Doug, maybe. And the, like, you could tell, I, I watched them like, well, this isn't going to last long because there was nobody just running, like setting up and running offense. And within 30 seconds, Nate Bjorken was down the bench telling TJ McConnell to come back in. And then they were just having the same problems. Cause I mean, obviously TJ McConnell's used to unders, but the Knicks were just going under over everything with him. And it's like, oh, well, we're running Spain actions, but who cares? Because it's automatically neutralized by the under. And then they're funneling shots to guys who like right now, Miles has missed like, 27 of his last 33s like I mean he's literally at like 16% from three over the last five games Doug's at like 31% so if that's two of your floor spacers and you know like the Knicks were they were pretty much doubling Sabonis on the catch minus a few exceptions he's throwing passes out of there he got like five quick assists in that first quarter and then it's like okay well now he's just throwing the ball to guys who are missing shots like I, I don't know what else you really do in that instance um so uh, so this is the way I want to frame this question. So if let's say Kevin Pritchard's number pops up on the, on your phone and, <laughs> and asking you um, what the trade what the Pacers should do at the trade deadline, if you were to advocate for improving on the margins, making kind of like a big swing, um, 
or any other type of move, what would you advocate for at this point? Wow. I mean, it's so tough because you don't know what's actually out there. Right. Um, I think in part, all along, I've pretty much held to, I think having two bigs in the lineup is going to have a limited ceiling. Like, I think that it's worked better in certain instances, but even now, like you can see, you know, they play a game, they play against Brooklyn, which they pretty much got wrecked in that game. But I mean, Kevin Durant didn't even play. So if you have like Kyrie, Joe Harris, TLC, James Harden, DeAndre Jordan out there, like then the Pacers have two bigs and it's like, who does Sabonis guard? You know, ideally probably DeAndre Jordan, but then who does Miles Turner guard? And they were pretty much just like, you know, we're going to run a pick and roll at that guy. We're going to get you cross matched and we're just going to drive and, and score. So there's that. And then like what I just mentioned with the three point shooting, like right now, I think miles is close to his career low from three, his volume shot up a little bit. And I don't think he's going to keep shooting 16% obviously, but if you're running a double drag, most of the time, both defenders are going to go with Sabonis. Like nobody's going to stick out there with miles. And that was the case against the heat. Like everybody was criticizing the Pacers for, you know, they need to stop isolating against Bam out of bio through those first two games. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously it's like watching a bird fly into the same glass window over and over again. But when they weren't isolating against Bam, Bam was roaming off of miles and doubling onto, you know, TJ Warren, doubling onto Malcolm Brogdon because teams are just content. Like, you know, he might hit some of those shots, but we don't think he's going to beat us hitting some of those shots. So that's not, and that wasn't even the case. Like miles was at the five in that series. He wasn't playing at the four when they need spacing around a guy who's diving or who's now doing more and face up and, and, and driving. So you're seeing a lot of extra attention there. All of that said, I kind of still want to see what the two of them are going to look like in a playoff series if this team can finally ever be healthy all at the same time. So I think my advice to Kevin Pritchard would probably be wait to see what the results of the trade you just made are before you start making another trade. Like I want to see what impact Karras and TJ actually make because some of those things that I brought up on the defensive end, you know, maybe they don't matter quite as much if you can get more natural scoring and maybe you can use some different lineups. Maybe Sabonis isn't getting, you know, triple teamed as was a couple times against the Knicks. If you have, TJ Warren scoring out on the perimeter, if you can do more four or five pick and roll or, you know, whatever you can do. So I think if I'm the Pacers, unless something's out there, that's just absolutely going to blow me away. I want to see what the team can do if they're actually healthy and hopefully if they can actually make it to the playoffs. I mean, their schedule in March is brutal. So if Karras and TJ don't get healthy, I don't know, like it will be, they might be in the play in situation and it could get dicey. Can you talk a little bit about Aaron holiday? Cause he's one of the more interesting players on this team for me. And you wrote a bit about him and I read that and I just want to hear your take on him, what you think his future is in Indiana, because I thought this might be a breakout year from him, especially with all the depot leaving and that it obviously it hasn't been that he's really struggled. So what do you think of him so far? Yeah. I mean, I think he's one of the most fascinating players. I mean, there was rumors that, you know, kind of scuttled around at the time when the Gordon Hayward, Miles Turner thing propped up that Boston was like, Hey, you know, 
we we want we're interested in Aaron Holiday as well, or you know T.J. Warren or whatever the case was. And it, it seems by reports that the Pacers really balked at that, that they didn't want to give him up, which made sense at the time because, like you said, it seems like you know he would be really he looked a little bit better in the bubble. He looked like he was making some leaps. I mean, naturally he's prone to high highs and low lows, which is what has led both Nates now to lean more on T.J. McConnell as a backup point guard because he's just a steadier hand. Um, he's better at just keeping the offense flowing. Uh, when a set breaks down, he knows what to do and get, and get to the next action. Whereas Aaron can struggle in that regard. He just doesn't make great reads. Sometimes his pocket passes are behind the roller. Sometimes they're ahead of the roller. And yeah, like what I wrote in the article, I, I wasn't even, I don't think I was fully aware at how much he was struggling until I really got on cleaning the glass and looked at some of those numbers. And I was like, wow, the finishing has been bleak. Like this has been very bleak and it, it doesn't make sense in some regards because like the floor is better spaced now, like just in terms of positioning, not necessarily what percentages guys are shooting, but the floor is better spaced in a lot of the actions than it was a year ago under Nate McMillan. And he's just not really getting shots to go. I think some of it, he tries to do a little bit too much, but the three point shot has come on a little bit more here of late over the last five or six games, but he was really struggling from deep. Some of that he started, he was starting um, when TJ initially went down with the the foot surgery and it, it didn't feel like he could really kind of grasp onto what his role was when he was out there with Malcolm and Brogdon and TJ and, I mean, not TJ miles and Sabonis. So then they're bringing him off the bench and like he thrived in that role last year. That's what's really weird about it. Like he and TJ McConnell, that lineup with Justin and Doug and Sabonis as a, a through line was really good. And now this year, like he's just, he's just gone through it. Like there's not a clear answer to me. I mean, I even went through synergy with the three point shots. I was like, how is he getting these shots? Are more of them coming off of screens and he's just not shooting well off of screens. And it's like, no, still most of them are coming spot up opportunities and he's just not knocking the shots down. So I think overall, I still believe in his ability to be a a role player in the NBA, but my expectation, like I never really saw him as a starter, but my expectation of what he can do as an actual backup point guard at his size when teams are hunting him has, has um, diminished a little bit from what we've seen. Yeah. Some of the numbers are so bad. It feels like it has to be a little bit of just being unlucky this yeah. year. Like it, it, like it has to go up. It's uh, he's just has so much talent. Like it has to go up at some point, the two point percentage, is so low and the true shooting is so low. Like it, his numbers have to get better and it, it feels like, and it's such a similar situation with the Knicks with some of their, like Jeff was talking about with their vets, with the TJ McConnell thing where right. he's trying to beat out TJ McConnell. It's so eerily similar. Like, well, yeah. And the problem is, is it's like, I mean, TJ McConnell did not play in game four of the playoffs last year. I mean, the heat were so good at getting back in transition that the main thing that TJ McConnell brings, which is pace, it wasn't all that useful anymore. So he wasn't even part of the rotation. Whereas you can see with Aaron, you know, if his three does eventually fall, like he, he at least has that skill. Like if, if a team's mm-hmm. zoning you in the playoffs, Aaron can hit a shot while also attacking gaps. So you really want to see that development come along. And, it, it, and at that point, it's like you said, it can be fresh frustrating of you know if he doesn't get the opportunity to actually be doing things is he ready when he's the guy that you're actually going to need yeah well you know who tj mcconnell is and you don't know what aaron holiday is yet and you know what he is yet exactly caitlin uh last one from me um 
I figured we'd end with a bit of a fun one. I, I would. I, I don't know if you have hatred towards the Knicks at all. Mm. Um, I would assume as a Pacers fan that you do, but maybe you don't. Um, but I did want to ask you, um, who do you think is the most overrated current Nick? And who is the, the Nick that you just couldn't stand um, from some of their more you know famous teams back in the day? Okay, so are there Knicks that are overrated currently? Um, I don't think so. That's a good point, actually. I mean, there may not be, or or I guess maybe just a Nick that you. I mean, the turnaround on Julius Randle is like yeah. astounding. <laughs> like that's just amazing. I mean, I was on another Nick podcast before the season started, and we like somebody kind of made a joke of like, oh, you know, Sabonis and Julius Randle, those are those are equals, and now <laughs> it's like. You know, they kind of are like, I mean, Julius Randle was really pressing the ball the other night in transition. Like that dude's just like a bowling ball rolling down the aisle. Bringing that was a intensity. battle. That yeah. was a battle between those guys. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I do enjoy Julius Randle. I don't have a lot of um, sports hatred in general. Like I said, like, I feel like the longer that I do, you know, podcasting and I'm writing, I just kind of see these players as, as <laughs> puzzle pieces to move around and, and stories to write. So like, I don't have a lot of like fandom or hatred left. I know that's a really lame answer, <laughs> but it's really the true, the truth. I mean, yeah, I think- I, I'm interested to know if there are actually overrated Knicks. Um, Chip, what do you think? I would say like, if, if it was, if it was for me, I guess you could say, um, I don't know if, if Austin Rivers would even. No, he's not even in the rotation. He's not rotation, but <laughs> he's in play. No, I, I, I thought you were going for like the way people talk about Frank Nielakina. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, people do really love Frank Nielakina. Yeah. yeah. Expand him. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of momentum towards playing Frank, <laughs> Frank Nielakina. Well, we, we just found out tonight that uh, Derek Rose is going to be out due to health and safety protocols. I, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Frank, I don't know. Maybe Rivers is going to get back into the rotation tonight. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting for sure. Um but but listen, um, thank you so much. Well, let me you know. Let me ask Chip real quick. Chip, do you have anything for Caitlin before we let her go? I thought you were going to ask about your guy Cassius Stanley. Ah, oh, you know what? I'm going. Yeah, yeah. I should definitely do that. Um, so yeah, Caitlin, I do believe Cassius is what he is participating in the slam dunk competition at this point. I think. I yes, think- it's official. Mm-hmm. I think they just made it official. Yeah, they mm-hmm. just made it official. So. Um, yeah, I would like. I would love to hear you talk about Cassius. I know he's been in the G League for most, if not all, of the season. But um, a guy that I when when the Knicks were drafting, um, I didn't know he would go as late as he did. But it was somebody that I was really really interested in when I got into the tape at Duke, and uh, I still think he could have a really really solid career. Um, you know, what have you kind of seen from him and, and are you hopeful or optimistic about his ceiling? Right. So I don't do a lot of draft coverage, but I do in general subs- uh, ascribe to the theory that you should take the best player available, which is what the Pacers said that they thought the last two years that they didn't expect. I mean, that's kind of the cliche that we didn't expect that guy to be so low on the board, you know, but that is what they thought. And uh, they overall, the Pacers have kind of struggled drafting a little bit, but 
their problem this year is they have so many combo guards that there really wasn't going to be a clear spot for him to be able to play, which is why it was pretty important that the G League bubble became a thing. Um, early on, he did, he injured his right foot and missed a game. So it's kind of tough to evaluate for me after seeing him come back. He was, he was in somewhat of a limited role. They didn't start him in a couple of the G league games. So it's kind of tough to know, like how much was he being held back by the foot? But one thing that I've noticed is, um, the Maddians and the Pacers run identical playbooks. Like that really wasn't the case a year ago, but under Bjorkren and their new G league head coach, it's the exact same plays. So one thing that I've noticed is they run all these staggers and sometimes Karras can be a little bit hesitant where I'd like to see him more aggressively look for his own shot. But again, you don't necessarily know if that's the foot injury. He really heated up in the most recent game. He led all scores with 20, went four of six from deep. Obviously the athleticism is absurd. His ability to dunk is obviously a legit thing. Broke the vertical record, <laughs> vertical leap record are Zions at Duke. So um, just in the, in the case of him being a guy that you could use the leak out and transition and get dunks and also be able to shoot the three. I mean, I don't think there ever can probably be enough shooting on teams. It's just for him going to be the case of, is there actually a spot for him to get a chance to develop because the Pacers signed him to a two-way contract. So he's not guaranteed on their 15 man roster. So we'll see what else happens. I mean, the fact that he's in the dunk contest alone is kind of interesting because yeah. the G league season wraps up on Friday and then if, if the Maddians make the playoffs, which they're like a one and a half games out, it's probably a long shot if they do. But like the dunk contest is Sunday and then the G League playoffs start Monday. So that logistics is kind of a little weird, but I don't know how much we'll see of him in a Pacer uniform this year, but I'm definitely hopeful to see more of him next year with the Maddians or if, you know, they make some roster moves and maybe a, a fringe bench roll opens up. Yeah, I would, I would definitely be interested in seeing him play as well. Um, well, listen, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it uh, talking some Pacers basketball with us. Before we wrap up and end, if you can just let all the people listening know where they can find you on Twitter, um, where, they, where they can find your amazing work. And um, if you're working on anything right now and want to promote it, please do so. All right. So yeah, I'm at Indy Cornrows, which is the Indiana Pacers blog at SB Nation. And then my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. Um, usually have about one or two things over there per week, usually longer things. I mean, the one that I'm working on right now, I told everybody that we should burn the film of that Sixers game and never speak of it again. But unfortunately, because the Pacers play the Nuggets on Thursday, which is going to require more double teaming, I'm assuming of the post, I think it was pretty important to look back at that of how um, just not very good they were at doubling the post. So that should probably go up tomorrow, which would be Wednesday morning, depending upon when you release this. Excellent. Uh, Caitlin, once again, thank you so much for coming on. And to everybody else who is listening, um, we will talk to you soon. And we hope you guys are staying safe.